My name is Mark McGuinness, and this is the 21st Century Creative, the podcast that helps you thrive as a creative professional amid the demands, the distractions, and the opportunities of the 21st century. Welcome to episode four of season three. And I have an amazing story to share with you today. My guest, David Hyatt, is doing something you're not really supposed to do these days. He's reopening a factory in Wales that closed about 15 years ago due to overseas competition. We've heard a lot about this problem in recent years, especially of factories and industries closing in advanced Western economies, mentioning no names. But there aren't many people who have attempted such a daring and creative solution as David and his team. So do stay tuned to hear a fascinating interview with an entrepreneur and creative thinker who has always taken a contrarian path. A quick update about one of our former guests on the show, Last season, one of the most moving interviews was with Jari Balanda, who was talking about his book The Entrepreneur Ethos, which he wrote partly in tribute to his late wife, Jane Yin Balanda. And Jari has a new book out, Eight Startup Dilemmas All Founders Will Face, which has a brilliantly simple structure, looking at eight of the biggest choices you have to make when you start a new venture. These include solo versus team, bootstrap versus investors, product versus service, and free versus paid. It's a great read if you're starting a new business, or even maybe if you're a few years down the line and thinking you could do with changing a few things. Talking of product versus service, if you choose service in your business, then I have a few things to say about the process of finding and enrolling the right kind of clients for your creative business. If you're a creative service provider of any kind, then to sign the right kind of clients on the right kind of contracts at the right kind of fees, then you basically need to do two things. Just about Every client I've coached who was struggling to make sales when they were good at the actual work was failing to do one or other of these things, or doing them the wrong way round, or getting the wrong balance between them. The first thing you need to do is inspire your potential client with a vision of what's possible with your help. If you're a designer, you can do this with a portfolio of beautifully designed work and maybe an Instagram feed that's a feast for the eyes, or a product or a book or a project of your own. If you're a copywriter, you can do it with a beautifully and persuasively written website, with examples of other beautifully written websites, sales pages, and other work you've done for clients. You may well write articles and books and be interviewed on marketing podcasts, speak at marketing conferences, If you're a web developer or a programmer or you're offering another kind of technical service, then 
you could write articles or produce videos explaining in clear, everyday language how your technical skills can solve real-world problems and deliver results for your clients. If you're a coach or a consultant, you can produce educational material that will help the kind of people you would also like to serve as clients. This can include books, a blog, a newsletter, a podcast, videos, e-learning courses, and so on. I could go on, but hopefully you get the idea. Whatever your line of work, put something out into the world that's not just marketing material, but an extension of your work for clients. This gives potential clients a taste of your work, and the right kind of client will be inspired by this. Inspiration is essential. If you don't inspire someone, if they don't get any feeling of excitement or interest when they see what you're putting out into the world, then why would they be interested in working with you? And why would they want to work with you instead of the thousands of other options out there? But inspiration is not enough. You also need to inspire confidence that you will deliver results, that you are a professional with the necessary skills, knowledge, experience, commitment, and integrity to deliver for them. Obvious ways to inspire confidence include adding your qualifications or your client list and testimonials to your website, or offering a guarantee of some kind. It also inspires confidence when your website, especially your about page and your services pages, effectively communicates who you are, who you serve, and how you help them. And don't forget to talk about why you love doing this kind of work and serving this kind of client. Because the best kind of client will want to know that you care about your clients and there is a purpose to your work beyond simply earning money. One very powerful way to inspire confidence is to have a first stage in working together that's available at a modest fee or even no fee at all where you get right down to work with the client and demonstrate the value of your work for real. For example, whenever I receive an application from a potential coaching client, if I think we may be a good fit, then I will block off two hours in my diary and coach them for real at no charge. By the end of that two hours, the client has a very good idea of whether and how I can help them. And the two of us have a very good idea of how well we work together and whether we both want to continue. Similarly, I've coached editors who undertake to edit a short chapter or an article before they commit to working on a whole book with a client. Or designers and copywriters who offer brand consultations up front to understand a client's situation and aspirations and advise about options before they take the client on and commit to doing any design work. As well as inspiring confidence in the client, this kind of preliminary engagement also helps you. Because when you work with someone, you see how they show up in the relationship and whether they're prepared to do their part of the work and let you do yours effectively. You also learn whether you enjoy working with them and whether they represent an opportunity to do your best work. 
So, inspire first, then inspire confidence. If you do both of these in this order, your schedule will fill up with the right kind of clients. Some people love the inspiration part. They like putting out blog posts or videos or engaging with people on social media or networking and meeting new people or speaking at events. Inspiring people is fun. But unless you follow through by also inspiring confidence, your positive energy will fizzle out without bringing you the clients you want. Maybe your website looks a little old-fashioned or it doesn't explain what you do and how to become a client. Or maybe you get nervous when you're talking to a prospect and they like you, but they don't feel confident trusting you with their business. Other people try too hard to inspire confidence before they've inspired anyone. They make sure you're aware of their impressive qualifications and their client list, but they don't share their ideas or put their personality out into the world. If this is you, and if someone lands on your website or they meet you in person, they may be impressed, but also a little intimidated or just not engaged and enthused enough to want to work with you. However hard you work, sometimes you can encounter dry spells in your business. So thinking about inspiring versus inspiring confidence can help you diagnose and fix the problem. So, firstly, if you're not getting enough attention in the form of readers, listeners, website visitors, and new inquiries, then you need to reach out and inspire people more. Write a book, speak at conferences, launch a podcast or a live event. In the other scenario, if you're getting a decent amount of attention and website traffic and inquiries, but not enough inquirers are signing on and becoming clients, then you need to look at how you can inspire more confidence. Look at everything from your website to your client enrollment process and ask yourself, does this really inspire confidence? Does this really demonstrate who I serve and why and how I can help them? Does anything raise a doubt, however small? If you're not sure, ask a colleague. Or better still, your existing clients. You may be surprised by what you learn, and hopefully, you'll be inspired to act on it. If you're a creative professional, you've probably noticed by now that rejection and criticism are a fact of life for you. If you're an artist of any kind, your work will be rejected by editors, curators, and other gatekeepers. And each time you put it in front of the public, you expose yourself to criticism. If you're a performer, you may have had to deal with the criticism live and in person, face-to-face. Just to get on the stage or in front of the camera, you're going to have to go through a lot of rejection. If you're an entrepreneur you face rejection by customers, partners, and investors. Those same people won't hesitate to criticize you if they're unhappy. At some point, you've probably had a well-meaning friend or family member tell you not to take it so personally. And whoever said that, bless them, is almost certainly not a creative themselves. Because 
any creator will confirm, it's almost impossible not to take it personally, at least at first. You put your heart and soul into your work, so it feels like your heart and soul are the very things being rejected and criticized. To help you deal with these challenges, I've written a book, Resilience, Facing Down Rejection and Criticism on the Road to Success. It starts by explaining why it's normal to take rejection and criticism personally and what you can do about it. It's full of practical tips from the many years I've spent coaching creatives like you dealing with rejection and criticism in their careers. And there are lots of real-life examples from my own experience as a writer and creative entrepreneur and also from famous creators, past and present. If you'd like to be more resilient and creative in the face of rejection and criticism, go to 21stCenturyCreative.fm slash resilience and pick up your copy of Resilience today. David Hyatt was an unconventional teenager. Instead of posters of rock stars on his bedroom wall, he had posters of Nike, Adidas, and other clothes brands he admired. His first business ventures involved selling ice lollies to his fellow pupils on hot school days and selling trainers on a market stall after leaving school at 16. By the age of 21, he was working at the ad agency Saatchi & Saatchi, where he was mentored by the legendary creative director Paul Arden. Not content with building other people's brands, David left Saatchi's in 1995 and moved back home to Wales to found the clothing company Howie's with his wife Claire, making clothes for people engaged in outdoor pursuits such as mountain biking, skateboarding and surfing. Howie's was a disruptive company, making clothes out of natural, low-impact materials and taking a strong stand on environmental and political issues. Combined with its irreverent marketing tactics, this meant it attracted legions of passionate fans, as well as some vocal critics. In 2006, David and Claire sold Howie's to Timberland, and the following year they began hosting the Do Lectures. This is an annual event and a very unusual mashup of a festival and a conference. As David points out in the interview, inviting a hundred people to a cow shed in Wales is very different to the kind of conference hosted at glitzy venues in New York or London. And yet, it attracts speakers such as Tim Ferriss, Colin Greenwood from Radiohead, and Bill Drummond of the KLF. And if you're not one of the lucky hundred people who can squeeze inside the cow shed every year, you'll be pleased to know that all the lectures are available to watch for free via the website thedolectures.com. David is also a speaker and author who has addressed Apple, Google, and many other top companies and events. His books include Do Purpose, Why Brands with a Purpose Do Better and Matter More. A big theme of the Do Lectures and David's books is about taking on big, important challenges. And his latest venture, Hyatt Denim, is certainly proof of concept. The town of Cardigan in Wales was once home to the biggest jeans factory in Britain, with 400 workers making 35,000 pairs of jeans every week. But in 2002, 
the workers were all made redundant, and the factory closed, apparently forever. It's a familiar story in developed Western economies. Factories close and industries die, as manufacturing is outsourced to places that can produce things cheaper. But David wasn't happy with the usual ending to the story, and he decided to reopen the factory and rehire all the workers who had lost their jobs. People thought he was crazy, but the factory's now up and running with a three-month waiting list for jeans orders. If you want to know how he did it, and if you'd like some inspiration on living a more unconventional, creative and rewarding life, then I'm sure you'll enjoy listening to this conversation with David Hyatt. David, what made you want to become an entrepreneur? Um, I guess when I was growing up as a kid, I was like just super curious about uh, brands and business. And yeah, you know, I would have my, my entire bedroom, apart from the windows and the door handle, covered in posters from you know, Nike, Adidas, you know, Wrangler, Levi's. And you know, when I was at school, I was selling you know, ice lollies in the summer because our school was too you know, two miles away from the local shop. <laughs> so I was just kind of, um, it, it, it fascinated me from a very early age. And, and why brands rather than rock stars on your wall? Um, I don't know. I just felt that I gravitated towards them. And, I, you know, I was fascinated by the stories that they would tell, by the products. You know, for me, I was going to trade shows, you know, at 13, you know, wow. tie on. Um, I would get secret pass tickets, and you know, I was I went to Buckter, which was a, um, a clothing brand. Um, you know, I was thirteen, and I went to them and said, "Look, unless you do these twenty-three points on your marketing, you're going to die." And they went, "Oh, <laughs> thank you." Um, and uh, and they didn't do them, and and they did die. Um, and uh, it's kind of uh, so I was always like, you know, like interested and I, I don't know why i mean i love music as well but um I, I never really wanted to be a rock star i just wanted to be you know uh, i wanted to be that person who started that company that people like loved and okay i want to pick up on the word love because it's not necessarily a word all of us would associate with companies could you expand on that well i think i think for me it's like i was really interested in companies that not only sold something, but did something. And so like, you know, the likes of Patagonia now and, uh, and the Patagonia is a really good example is, you know, they're trying to protect the environment by, you know, using their business as a tool to go and do the things that they care about. And, and I guess as I've grown a lot um, older and maybe a bit more smart, I was just kind of like interested in those companies. And early on, I was just interested in companies that did great sports products. Um, so, but I loved Nike and I loved Adidas and and so, and I always ask the question, God, what what is what have they done to make me love it? And yeah, and it was really about you know the sport and I love sport basically, um, and I loved teams, and so it was really you know just like brands were like a really good question for me in terms of the you know like most people go and you know try and find the answer. I've gone, God, you know, brands are really good good question. Um, because you have to go and ask, make it, ask 
brilliant questions for people to think that, that that's their brand. So there's a lovely quote you have in your book, Do Purpose, where you, you talk about brands with a purpose. You say they do better and matter more because they make you feel something. How is it that they make us feel something? What What is it, the magic ingredient that you see in some brands and obviously it's missing in others? Well, I think it's, uh, I mean, I think what most brands forget is actually they're talking to human beings and, and, and human mm. beings are mostly emotion. And so... You know, the, the most powerful brands in the world um, take you on a journey, which is extraordinary because it's, it's not that far. Um, but it's the 18 inches from your head to your heart. So in essence, they make you feel something. Yeah. And, and um, yeah, I, I was doing a workshop in London uh, you know, a couple of weeks back, and I was trying to explain people, and, and I love both brands, Adidas and Nike, but Nike made you feel something for sport because actually sport is emotional. Um, and for whatever reason, Adidas didn't. Both made great products, both have great athletes, both, both have great um, inventions, both have great marketing budgets. But Nike made you feel something. They took you on that journey, that 18 inches. And, and I, I think actually it's the most interesting companies in the world make you feel something because of the thing that they're doing. And, uh, and so most brands are a very well-told story. Um, and for whatever reason, you know, Adidas wanted to use logic. You know, oh, we make this boot mm -hmm. much better. Um, and, and Nike made you want to dream about actually winning the race. So in the mid-90s, you founded your own clothes brand, Howie's. Yeah. What was the story you wanted to tell with that brand? Well, the initial premise for it, which um, appeared on the very first ad, which was a really, you know, uh, it was a very small black and white ad, but it, it said these words, which you know, actually was the essence of why we did it, was you know, we want to make you think as well as buy. And when I looked around at you know, all the sports brands and, uh, uh, that were out there, that mostly they just wanted you to buy. And I'm going, well, yeah. wouldn't it be a wonderful experiment as a company if it um, you know, tried to make you think about the world that we're living in? And yes, buy the T-shirt, buy, buy the great you know, merino vest. But I was really fascinated by that question. Can a company exist by making a great product? Yes. But actually asking you some really you know, fascinating questions. I mean, I, I heard the other day, like... Um, and this fact, uh, like, I don't know where this fact came from, but it was like a four-year-old asks 400 questions a day. <laughs> I can confirm this. <laughs> and so like, you go, but actually when they go to school at five, they're told by the teacher to put their hand up. Um, right. So they can't free form questions anymore. They're, so they're, they're, you know, they're at their peak at four. Right. So it's the questions. We're at our peak at four. And then we get crushed at five. Um, but I think, um, I think you know, we are guided by the questions we ask. And, and that's uh, for human beings and for brands. I mean, so, so that was my question. Can, can a company exist in this world right now that seeks to make you think about the world that you live in and, you know, and then try and sell you something? But it was a mixed, you know, we, we didn't, you know, success wouldn't have been just selling you something. 
Right. So you want it to be more than a transactional relationship. Yes. And, and I, I just felt that that was really an interesting company to be a part of because most of the companies were really just interested in a transaction. They, they wanted that long number on your credit card and you to flip the cards and give them that you know, CCV, you know, was it CVV number. Yeah. Uh, that was the relationship they most wanted. I'm going, well, actually, what if we can have a relationship with you as a human being and get you to buy? And, I mean, obviously on the outside, it looks a huge success. What, what did you learn from the process of that, you know, how easy it is to get both sides of that relationship in sync? Well, I mean, it's a challenge because, like, you know, you've got to go and try and pay the wages every, you know, like every month. And um, But actually what I've learned is from that was actually, you know, I can't tell you how many people have come up to me and said, like, I've got every Howie's catalog. <laughs> and I'm very much, like, I don't think they've done a catalog in, I don't know, seven years. And people just keep coming up to me and go, like, I've got every one. Uh, and, like, literally, I'm missing one. You know, is there any way you can get, get me one? I'm going, so we created a community. And actually, it was a very, very strong community. I mean, like, in the same way as Patagonia did. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, so I feel like, actually, we... We were very successful in in doing that, and I mean another you know way to measure success is actually when we you know we were growing a business. We hadn't really run a business before. We were kind of clueless in cardigan, um, and you know, but at the end of it, like you know, PPR who own Gucci, Yves Saint Laurent, you know, Puma, they came to us and said we been trawling around the world and we've seen two brands that we would like to buy. One was Quicksilver and one was Howie's. You know, you know the guy who started uh, AOL, Steve Case, mm-hmm. you know, like he wanted to do something. Do you mean like, so we, all those companies, apart from Adidas, you know, would have done something with us. Um, so we'd done something in terms of a brand. The business was, you know, growing dramatically quick, um, which was part of our uh, issues. We, 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 you know, as everybody thinks, it's like, you know, growth is really good for a business, but growth can also kill a business because you grow too quickly and you need a lot of money. Yeah. So it was, it was a fascinating journey and it just made me kind of, um, you know, like I was a little bit heartbroken when we sold it to us because you're suddenly not in charge of your destiny anymore. And, and actually for a brand like Howie's, it needs to, to be independent. Um, because that voice is so special, mm-hmm. uh, and so and it can't be done by committee. There has to be one crazy guy or girl mm-hmm. just going, "This is my heart. This is what I believe." And that's why Patagonia is successful because it's Yvonne and Melinda, like saying, "These are our values. This is my company. You know, buy from me or don't buy from me." And do you think the fact that it was from Wales is important as well? Well, I think, I mean, initially, you know, how we started in 95, um, uh, we didn't really move the company to Wales till 2001. It was at the same point, I, I do remember it, because it was our first paycheck. So we'd done it for six years as a, like, uh, you know, like as some kind of quest and hobby. Mm-hmm. Um, and and actually those formative years, you know, which were, you know, like we did some really odd, amazing things and, you know, we were going down to like give some bands some t-shirts on a Saturday and, and, you know, this guy came up to me and said, like, who are you? I said, oh, I'm David from Howie's and he's going, um, oh, 
my mate uh, Jeff owns Howie. So I'm going, well, Jeff works for me, but he doesn't own it. And it turns out that was Banksy. Um, he was doing a backdrop to uh, a band. and um, But we were, like, doing a lot of interesting things. I mean, we were, we, we were like, you know, we were banned from, you know, mountain bike events. We were, you know, banned from um, shows. We, we were just there trying to go, hey, we're just going to ask these questions and, and not everybody's going to like what we do. But it kind of got us this, like, I, I don't like the word cult following, but... Like there was a really strong community. I mean, what questions were getting you banned? Well, I mean, uh, you know, like we we couldn't afford um, uh, we couldn't afford uh, uh, to go to one of these events because they were, you know the, to exhibit at one of these things was like five grand. Mm-hmm. Um, so we uh, we painted um, you know some girls with some t shirts, um, and you know they were like half naked, you know, from the waist waist up and um so we released them into the show at 10 a.m um and at 10 30 we were banned i mean uh, but actually the whole uh the whole show came to a standstill and actually the question um we really wanted to go is like how do small companies get noticed in this world because like five grand is a lot of money Mm -hmm. um and and the interesting thing is the organizer of the events that you know I had to go down to Bath. It was like future publishing. And I, they said, look, you need to come down and apologize to us in person. I'm going, fine, okay. Um, I went down and said, look, I didn't really, maybe I didn't think it through. It wasn't perhaps the smartest thing in the world. I'm so sorry. I'm not going to do it again, obviously. Um, and they said, yeah, okay, that's fine, Dave. Um, and a week later, they said, um, can you send us some photographs? Because we want to use that as um, uh, you know, marketing no. uh, uh, stuff. But next year's, and I'm going, well, hang on, fuck you. <laughs> In a nice, gentle, mm. human way. But I mean, the, 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 you know, and we, you know, when we launched the, the T-shirts, you know, we put five T-shirts on a mountain bike show and, and we just put little signs just as steal these. And then the brackets was, um, you know, you'll be rewarded with your good taste. Um, and and, um, they? and uh, well, you know, mountain bikers are much more polite than skaters right. and half a morning for them to walk past it maybe 40 50 times and we were in the bushes trying to take some photographs we were going oh, we were desperate to go to the toilet um and that's and then when they actually took the t-shirts they had a massive fight somebody got a black eye and you know but you know for five t-shirts we'd launched at the event and everybody's going like who's howie right you didn't again, blend for in me, uh, no, we didn't blend in a lot of people think you have to go and outspend a bunch of people um but i think to get noticed my thing has always been actually well um you can do interesting things and stand out and they don't have to cost a bunch of money and and, and i've kind of kept that that like almost pathos in terms of like you know we can we can stand out and uh, you know we've never had a marketing budget of any real note um and in a way if you can't outspend people you have to start thinking at that point. Mm. And I think that thinking makes you an interesting company, an interesting person. So one interesting thing you've done, which is really bucking a big trend, is that you've reopened the jeans factory in your local town in Wales. And, yeah. you know, at this point in history, you're not really supposed to do things like that. We're told that, you know, advanced Western companies, uh, countries... 
you know, we're supposed to leave manufacturing to China and to be doing, I don't know, consulting and software and all of that good stuff. So what made you decide that you were going to buck this trend and you were going to do it? Um, I mean, that's a great question. And the thing is, to give uh, your viewers like some context is, like, Cardigan's a very small town. It's on the far west of Wales. 4,000 people, super tiny, except for one interesting thing was it had Britain's biggest jeans factory and they made 35,000 pairs of jeans you know, every week for 40 years. But in 2002, the factory closed and 400 world-class makers had nothing to make. And, um, and all I had to do really was wait 10 years for the internet to happen. Like, and I happened to be just in the right town, in the right time with the right people and so it's an extraordinary moment of actually manufacturing, like you said, manufacturing goes away and it, it like almost never comes back. And that's the remarkableness of the story. Um, but the internet has changed the economics for makers. And so suddenly you know, the old factory had fought the battle of who could be the cheapest. And it turned yeah. out it wasn't us. And it's never going to be us. And so I'm going, well, a different question, reframe that question. You know, can we win the battle if we try to be the best? You know, we have in a very small team 200 years worth of knowledge of making jeans. We can go and play with the elite makers of jeans in the world, and there's a chance that we can win. Um, and so, um, so that wonderful story of like, like our town, you know, doesn't want to be a tourist town. It, it doesn't want to thrive just yeah. for six weeks a year, you know. Uh, I want us to go and pass those skills on to the next generation. And yeah, our town is a maker town and it's fighting for the right to make and it's fighting every day to pass those skills on to the next generation. And that's like every battle that you know crave people take, the battle should mean something to you. It should like make you feel alive. And uh, you shouldn't choose easy dreams. You should choose that's your mom's job. You know, go and be a carpenter. Um uh, but Nothing wrong with being carpenter, by the way. Um, but you should try and find dreams that are very, very hard for you to achieve because they push you to see actually where your true potential is. And you go, so I tell everyone I'm going to get 400 people that the job's back. And the first couple of years, people just laughed. And, and now come June, we'll be at 25 people. And there's a lot less people laughing than they used to. And, um, and I, I just think that's a... Yeah, for creative people is take on projects that make you feel alive, you know, that push you really hard. And and then you, you know, and even if you don't have a budget, then have ideas and like don't worry about how big everybody else is. Like concentrate on your own strengths. Like you might be not big, but you might be fast. And yeah, you know, being agile and you know, this is such an exciting time, you know, for you know, creative people. I mean, it really is. I mean, it is it is the golden time because if you have an idea, guess what? People are going to find out about it. And they're going to find out real quick. So I love this. I mean, one of the themes of this show is is something old, something new. And it sounds like you've taken a fantastic local tradition and you've put it together with new forms of communication by the internet and a new business model. Absolutely. Can you say a little bit about how that, how you marry the two? Yeah, I mean, I, it, and it took me like 12 months to figure this one out. Um, uh, you know, 
And I thought I was just starting a jeans factory. And, you know, we make great jeans and it's like the Luddite, right? It's huge scales, 20, 30 years. You know, Gladwell talks about yeah. 10,000 hours of to become a chess, chess master. Like in the factory, like some, some of them have done 50,000 hours of learning how yeah. to do one thing well. Extraordinary. It's like, and so we can go and play with the, the elite makers in the world because we have the knowledge and we have the skills and, um, and we have the patience to apply them. But this is a very busy world that we live in. And so it took me about 12 months to realize that um, we needed to start um, another factory, and that was the content factory. Um, because we're in the jeans business, but we're also in the storytelling mm-hmm. business. And actually, the truth is, we have to be every bit as, as good as telling the story as we are making the gene. Like, and and so, like, so we've had to learn you know, to master this old skills and new skills. Because the sewing machine yeah. is the old skill, but the internet is the new skill. And the storytelling and actually getting people to know that we exist I mean, that's, and we need those two things. And people say, oh, which one's most important to you? Like the, you know, the, the genes factory or the content factory. I say, well, I think of them as legs. Mm-hmm. I think of them, you know, like the genes factory is the left leg and the content factory is the right leg. Now you need both to go forward. And so you can't really ask that question because this is like a dumb question. Cause we actually, if we make a great product, we have to go and tell people that we exist in this world. And I think this is so important because I've spoken to goodness knows how many creatives who, I mean, they make amazing things, and yet they say, "Well, why is why is that not enough? Why is that not selling? Why am I still struggling?" And very often it's this the storytelling part. It's the yeah. well, why should people care about this part? Yeah, and I think it's like I get frustrated sometimes when people are just going, "Oh, you're just marketing. That's just marketing." You go so. And I'm there going, like, do you know it's tiresome? Because, like, you know, like, Van Gogh needed a marketing guy because he didn't sell anything in his lifetime. Um, so, um, and so he, you know, like, food on his table, he struggled. Um, and I'm there going, if you make a great product, tell a great story. And there's, there's nothing wrong with marketing. If you make a great product, your duty is to go and sell it. You're not artists. You know, you have to go and uh, be commercial about this saying it you make a great product and you get food on your table by selling that great product and and marketing allows you to eat so so when people say oh it's just you're just marketing it's just marketing you got um like why make a great product if you're not willing to tell the story um and uh, you know why why do you like you know say that it's just marketing when actually selling a product is a skill um it, it takes it takes a lot of effort and, and you have to read a lot about stuff in terms of it, being able to sell it. And you go, so honor marketing, because actually, you know, it's, you know, if a great product, you know, doesn't get sold, then why are you making the great product? You know, you're, you're not Van Gogh doing, um, and so, uh, you know, it, it frustrates me and I, I kind of get a bit um, annoyed by that because it, it kind of sounds like you know marketing is just a you know like a scummy thing, and you go, it's not actually telling a great story about all brands, right? All brands are a great story, well told. And also, it strikes me. I mean, this is a it's a true story, and it's a compelling story because you've put yourself on the line, you and your team. It's not an easy challenge. 
And yet you are restarting no. this old factory. You're reinvigorating the, the tradition. And, you know, there was no guarantee it was going to work. Oh, absolutely not. I mean, a lot of people beg me not to do it. Um, and, you know, it's it, like starting a factory is like hard. And that's why most people don't do it. I can't tell you um, how many famous brands have come to us and said, can you make jeans for us? And I go like, no, mm. don't start a factory. Make your own stuff. Um, because we're going to go and build a global denim brand and we're going to sell direct to our you know, customer. That's our business. Our business isn't to go and make your product. Um, but I think for creative people, is they, you have to do hard things because you know, like everyone's yeah. doing easy things. And for us, the reason we stand out is we've done a hard thing. Starting a factory is super hard. I mean, you know, running it on a daily basis is super hard. You know, keeping that team together, you know, understand the ebbs and flows of it, it's hard. Um, but actually, the, you know, from a creative point of view, it's like you have to go and find, you have to be able to answer hard problems. And actually, you're going to have a really fun life if you do that. And what's it been like seeing people come back into the the factory and become a team? Well, I mean, it's like you have to take it back to like 2002 and those gates closed and that clunk. No one out of those 400 people, not one, did they ever imagine, not one of those 400 imagined that that factory, you know, this town would ever make jeans again. Yeah. And they'd grown up there. I mean, you know, like Claudio, who makes, you know, cuts out jeans now, he started when he was 15. Um, and his big thing was, he said, you know what my biggest worry was? is I thought I'd never have anybody to go and pass those skills on to. And he was going to like, so he felt unfulfilled as a human being because he can, like, I wanted to pass those skills on, but I never thought I'd get a chance. And um, so it was kind of an extraordinary thing. And the, like, the interesting thing is that mostly with teams, you've got to go and try and motivate them. Like everyone's on a second chance. Like, you know, the, you know, we did Howie's, we sold it. <clears throat> we walked away. Um, and for them, the, the second chance is to go and make jeans again. And, you know, the town's on a second chance. And actually this time, you know, we won't fight the battle of who can be the cheapest. We'll fight the battle of who can be the best. Um, so you don't need motivation at that point. And so, like, seeing all those people come back in going, God, you know, you've got to understand is they're world class at doing this thing. Yeah. And, you know, imagine if you're, like, like or, you know, like suddenly a world-class writer is told that you can't write anymore. Or a world-class photographer, you go, hey, do you know what? You yeah. have to put your camera down. That, that, that's, like, a hard thing to say to somebody. You go, God, I spent 20 years learning this, and now, now it's not going to be used. And, you know, you've got to understand there's a pair of jeans is for us is 75 different processes. And we only have to be world class at 75 of them. <laughs> it's like a very simple thing, but very complex mm -hmm. thing. I mean, and in order to make it look incredible and amazing, there's an awful lot of skill. Um, so it, it, like they get a lot of satisfaction and, you know, like, and they're suddenly in films and they're suddenly in papers and, it's like, you know, the Hyatt Denim Company is a film waiting to happen. I mean, it's literally, you know, when we get those 400 people at Jobs back, like Hollywood's <laughs> going to come and go, can we make a film on it? You go, yeah, fine. 
ones I'm not involved. But well, you told me about a great potential scene from the film the other day when we were talking. You you talked about painting the floor at the beginning. Could you tell us that, please? Oh, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's I'm fascinated by teams. I love sports, and actually, you can't really be an entrepreneur unless you are able to build a team. And yeah, when we were signing on the lease for the you know for the uh, the you know the factory that we're currently in is you know the landlord had we give him a long list of things that he had to do in order for us to move in and one of them was you know paint the floor so it looks amazing and he went through the list did all the things he said well, i'm not painting the floor because i don't have to and i'm going well i'm going to bring some of the you know like the, the smartest people on the planet here um, i need the floor to look amazing i want these people to be surrounded by amazingness um we're making like one of the best jeans on the planet i can't have a shitty floor um and you know part of me was like I, I you know like i got really frustrated with these landlords you know i i have problems and issues with people who, who don't give a shit about their their thing do you mean uh, uh like when they just well it's just it's just the transactional relationship again isn't it yeah and like when somebody just wants to like do their job be average i have like do you know I, I <laughs> i'm not good at that either i know exactly I what you mean tricky and and so um i wanted to like lock him lock him in the building building because I, I knew like um you know we're next to the police station so when they get out they'll set the alarm off and the police will come and go what are you doing in there and it'd be a funny story if they were the landlords but uh, in the end i just walked out and claire like said goodbye to him claire's super polite she's more um much nicer than me and she said she said well you didn't handle that very well i'm going I hope I never handle that well. When I see people who don't care about or don't have pride in what they do, I need to get out of that building because I just can't do it. So anyway, the next day, I went and spent £460 on floor paint and the entire company painted the floor. And actually that point was a really important point in the factory and the team because actually we all decided at that point, you know what, we didn't want to be average. And the enemy was yeah. to be average. And actually, we all enjoyed painting the floor. And actually, when we moved to the new building, the new factory, we're all going to paint the floor again. Because I think that was the point where we became a team. Mm. You're literally preparing the ground, aren't you? Literally. And it was, a, it was, a, you know, it was an important moment. I mean, it was just that thing of going, you know, it wasn't like, oh, let's go and bond by, you know, doing an away day. It was, it was kind of bonding by going, actually, you know what? If we're going to go and get front wheeler jobs back, we can't be average and we mustn't let that in the building in any form. It was an intention. Okay, so not content with founding companies and also writing several books, you've also created a very unusual event, which I'm kind of struggling to describe because I don't think it's quite a conference and it doesn't exactly look like a festival either. Can you tell us a bit about the do lectures? Yeah, I mean, like... It's a funny thing because, um, like somebody said, like you know, they've I've always struggled to go like, what is it? I'm going out. Like, you know what? It's three two days and three nights of like complete nutrition for the soul and the body and the mind. Um, and when you start talking like that, people just go, I have no idea what you're on about. I'm going, and then you know, I say, ask the question, go like, you know, well, if you like, okay, describe chocolate, and people go, uh, and it's a really hard thing to describe. Yeah, we all like chocolate, and so the do lectures is hard to describe um, because 
it doesn't fit into a slot. It's a festival, it's a conference. It's, it's a mashup of all those things. Um, but it does, it's a very good, amazing three-day pause because most people don't get that time just to um, just question everything. And, uh, yeah, I mean, a funny story is, yeah, we used to have a deal with Virgin Atlantic. I mean, we love Virgin. Um, and the deal was, you know, we'd buy the speakers, you know, premium economy tickets and we'd try and get an upgrade. And they worked really well for us. And, and, and the deal for them was they would have, you know, send their three brightest down. Um, but after three years, they said, look, we're going to have to stop this. Almost everybody that's come down has resigned. And, uh, <laughs> and it does that, you know, it, it literally fries. And people like, people who come to speak think, oh, it's for the attendees. And then, you know, the attendees go, wow, this is changing changing my life. Also, the speakers come down and go, man, I've never been to a thing like this before. It's like, this has fried my brain. And we're trying to work out, what, and we've been trying to work out why it does what it does. And it's a combination of all the things. I mean, it is on a very it's very hard to get to, you know, the Wi-Fi is terrible. So, so it's on a, just so, you know, for, for somebody listening to this, it's on a farm in Wales. Yeah. And it's very limited numbers. Is that right? 800 tickets. Yeah. And we sell the tickets on March 1st and they're sold out. And right. We, um, you know, that time we get a waiting list as well. And, you know, and the last thing we want is any publicity for it. Cause like people go, Oh, we can write an article. about I'm going literally why? Because, um, like, yeah. we sell all the tickets. We can't make it any bigger. It's literally, you know, it, the barn literally is packed. Um, so, yeah, it's on a farm, West Wales, hard to get to. Over three days, three nights, it's happening end of June this year. And we've been very fortunate in getting some pretty amazing speakers from, I don't know, Sir Tim Berners-Lee. I mean, that's always a good talk. You know, I invented the, the internet. Yeah, you know, that's a good talk. Um, we had Perry Chan, Kickstarter. You know, we had Sax. I started Vimeo. You know, Tim Ferriss mm-hmm. came down. You know, in two thousand and eight. Um, you know, you know, his podcast has got a hundred million downloads. I mean, it, you know, like, so we've ha- we've attracted a lot of amazing creative people. You know, we had Colin Greenwood from Radiohead talking about how Radiohead work. Um, so. It attracts amazing speakers. It attracts actually amazing attendees. Um, it's it's gone on to be a book company. It's you know we're hoping that the do goes and starts other companies that should exist in this world but don't currently. And I mean, it's hard to describe, obviously. But what do you think is the magic ingredient for you personally? What do you like best about it? I think I think it's a chance to. Like stop being busy, and some of the questions that are asked, you've been asking for a long time, and perhaps you just see what is potential or what is possible. And sometimes, I mean, you know, I don't know about you, but those barriers that are in front of you are mostly put there by yourself, and so you have to find ways to remove those barriers. And actually, one, one way to remove those barriers is by listening to people who've removed them already. And I, I think that's, it just mm. finds a light in the road where you suddenly, you go, oh, that's the way forward. And 
and you you you've learned to get out of your own way yeah well that's a big reason why i do this show because i get to ask people like you and others who have removed a lot of barriers what's it like how did you do it um i mean i hope people listening get something from that and but also i mean i learned a tremendous amount by just asking these questions yeah absolutely i, I heard the story the other day was um like my kids uh, you know how was school i can they come back and i go how was school and um and they go fine and uh like but if you ask a different question is like you know what great questions do you ask today now, so I've been asking my kids that. They're going, oh, Dad, honestly, will you stop doing that? But they can't just say fine. Yeah. And so when you suddenly ask a different question, you know, our life is really governed by the questions that we ask, not the answers that we seek. And so I find that a completely fascinating way to run companies where you go, like, let's ask a different question. Let's reframe that question. And that gets us into a really interesting spaces. Well, that sounds like a great place to finish, David. And so my final question for you is, what question would you like people to take out with them? When, when they finish listening to this conversation, maybe some of the ideas going through their mind, what question would you like them to take away and reflect on and maybe act on this week? Well, I would like them to do a seven-day exercise and do it just for seven days. And that each day, it's going, what great question did I ask today? Do that for seven days. Because actually, like we start to then create a habit of asking great questions and and then we start to get really interesting answers at that point. Brilliant. I love that, David. And and I will be doing that one myself for sure. (laughs) Right. Okay. So now if you're listening to this and you're feeling like your nose is pressed up against the glass a little with the do lectures and, and thinking it's so exclusive, actually the a lot of the talks are available on, online, aren't they, David? Yeah, no, I, I think, like, I mean, we get that thing of, um, oh, the do lectures are elitist, but actually 100 people pay in order for there to be free talks in the world. So right. you know, I, I go and look at the app every morning, and suddenly there's somebody from China watching the talk, somebody from Korea, somebody from Holland, somebody from Germany. Beautiful. And so that, you know, those 100 people, attendees, and the people who come to the workshops, they're like patrons. And, yeah. and they support free. And, you know, like myself and Claire haven't earned a salary in 10 years. We, we, we don't earn a salary when we do lectures. But I'm glad it exists in the world. I mean, I think it's like it, it doesn't have a big sponsor. It doesn't. It's independent. You know, we pick the speakers because they're doing interesting things, not because, you know, like there's another reason. And I, I, I'm glad it exists in the world. And uh, people write, write us letters and say thank you for it. I'm, and and I'm, I'm proud of it. I'm proud that it exists just to help others. I mean, it's just to go like that beautiful journey from where you are now to where you could be. Mm. Like, most people settle. And, and the do lectures doesn't want you to settle. You go like, what, what is your true potential? And actually, actually, the closer you get to it, the happier you're going to be because you suddenly go, oh my God, I'm really fulfilled. And, and that's, that's the quest for the do lectures, like from a human point of view. It's like, can you get to your point B? Where you are now, you're at point A. Beautiful. And so where can people go to see the lectures? Is what... um, you know, the, on the website, the, you know, three talks. I think there's nearly about 300 talks. Um, you know, is the, that the do, do lectures.com. Lectures. Okay. Yeah. 
and um, I mean, obviously, you know, I'm, you know, High Denim, you know, has its website. You know, we've got currently got a three month waiting list for jeans. Oh, really? So that's Hyatt is H I U T Denim dot co dot UK. Is that right? That's correct. And uh, I mean, we we have a little bit of stress down at the factory because we got you know like a nearly a three month waiting list. Um, I mean, you know, there's different stresses in businesses. That, that's that's a nice. That's, that's a good one to have. <laughs> yeah. And if if somebody's listening to this and they're really enjoying the ideas that and the provocations you're putting out there, you, you've written several books. What would be a good book for them to start with? Well, I'd probably go. Uh, I wrote a book for the Dupont Company. Um, yeah, and it's called Do Purpose. And yeah, and I think for me, you know, the purpose-driven companies really are the most interesting ones. You know, there's you know people like truly understand you know why they're doing it and actually what matters to them and i think yeah if you're going to go and start companies you know like it's for me those are the most interesting companies in the world and that would be a you know good start it's a a very quick read i mean my old boss uh, you know paul arden when i was at sarchi's you know he wrote a book um it's not how good you are it's how good you want to be I kind of wanted to make it like his in as much as you didn't didn't have to spend 10 minutes. It's like a 10 minute read. Excellent. Well, I will put links to obviously all your sites and the book in the show notes. David, thank you so much for sharing. It's it's been a real pleasure listening to you. Thank you very much. Thank you for your time. You have been listening to The 21st Century Creative, hosted by me, Mark McGuinness. You can find the notes for today's show with more information about my guest and links to the sites we mentioned, as well as all the archived episodes at 21stcenturycreative.fm. If you enjoyed the show, then I hope you'll subscribe in iTunes, and I'm always grateful for your reviews, and also for sharing the show with your friends and followers. If you'd like to have the 21st Century Creative Foundation course delivered to you for free, giving you 26 lessons of advice and worksheets on carving out an original creative career, you can sign up at 21stcenturycreative.fm slash free course. And if you are an experienced creative interested in getting my help as a private coaching client, you can learn about how I help my clients at 21stcenturycreative.fm slash coaching. Thank you for listening. I hope you'll join me again soon.